All right, welcome everybody to the Lakers Legacy Podcast, where facts over feelings? More like, we're fact, that's how I'm feeling. Facted over feelings. Lakers are 0-4, baby. I'm your host, Jonathan Hernandez, and I'm joined by my co-host, Tommy Alexander, and I've got the facts, and Tommy's got the feelings. The facts? Well, the Lakers are the worst three-point shooting team in NBA history currently. Yikes. (laughs) Yikes is right. And they may also just be a legitimately bad team for the second straight year in a row. Now, the feelings? Tommy, how are you feeling? Nah, not feeling too good. There you go. You heard it from Tommy first. He's not feeling too good. And as you can tell, we have Tommy on a drive-by recording as he makes his way down the 110 freeway on a Thursday night. Anyways, the Lakers lost to the Nuggets 99-110 to and have dropped their fourth straight loss of the season. They are currently 0-4 without a win, joining just two other teams in the NBA with no wins. The 0-5 Magic and the 0-3 Kings. Although the Kings do play the Memphis Grizzlies tonight, they'll likely be 0-4, but who knows. Anyways, with Westbrook, without Westbrook, with Darvin Ham, without Frank Vogel, Lakers are all still just 0-4 at the end of the day, all with LeBron James and Anthony Davis on this roster, and Rob Palinka, Jeannie Buss, and the Rambi are the main common denominators here. So yeah, with Westbrook still on the roster and the Lakers talking out of both sides of their mouth with regards to this team's identity, who could have possibly seen this coming? So Tommy, some quick stats. I have some quick stats to dole out to you with regards to starting off 0-4. This is the first time LeBron James has gone 0-4 to start the season since his rookie year. I saw that on ESPN. Yeah, I know. Quite Quite the 360 turnaround from year one to year 20. Also, the Lakers have never started 0-4 in Jerry Buss's 34-year tenure. Did you see that one? Yep. So, since the 1999-2000 season, only 10 teams that started out 0-4 have made the playoffs. That's a span of 22 years. Also, no team that started out 0-4 has won the NBA championship. So, cool beans. Anyways, before we continue on with this episode... You guys know the drill. If you could please spare 30 seconds of your time and rate and review us five stars on the Apple Podcast app. And at the very least, just hit the five-star button at the top of our Spotify page. That would help us out tremendously. Our motivation for potting and our general joy and litness is waning by the game with this Lakers team. So if you guys could show us your support, that would be amazing because you guys are the only things keeping this show alive. So please shoot some five stars our way. The more five stars you send us, that's an extra three-point shot the Lakers will make throughout the entirety of the season. And as you all know, given they're currently shooting like 22%, they will need any extra made threes they can get. So Tommy, to the point of three-point shooting, and this is where we'll get into the show, um, the Lakers are shooting 33 of 148 on threes this year. That is is 22.3%. Uh, the worst three-point field goal percentage over any four-game span by any team within a season in NBA history. Matt Ryan, who we signed officially to the roster like two days before the season began, is four of eight. So if you take Matt Ryan out of the equation, they're shooting 29 of 140, 20.7%. Amazing. Okay, so let's get into things. The Lakers are 0-4. What do you make of this team and this start? And I do want to caveat things by saying, for me, that's actually not too far off a record from where I had us at this stage, because I had us at 1-3 with the one win coming against Portland, and we, we should have won that game. But where I'll caveat that caveat is, I think the fashion with which we've been losing is alarming. And by that, I mean with AD playing phenomenal on both ends, his three-point shooting notwithstanding, with LeBron playing stellarly in three out of those four games, and then with the rest of the role players actually buying in and the defensive scheme and energy being a somewhat consistent foundational pillar, 
having all those things set in motion, yet still losing all four of our games while also shooting the worst three-point percentage in NBA history, to me, that's very alarming. Are there flashes of something to work with here? Yes, absolutely. Defensively, like I mentioned, you definitely see flashes of a dynamic group of versatile players who can wreak havoc. But to me, they're just flashes at the end of the day. And my biggest question is, can the Lakers sustain that level of play at their current size for more than two quarters of a 48-minute game? Can they sustain that level of play for the next two weeks, the next month? And even with those flashes, again, we're 0-4. And to me right now, the fun, small ball, versatile defensive spurts we've seen with LeBron at the 5, to me it just seems like a nice little gimmick. And you can't rely on that for the majority of a game, let alone the majority of the season. And I know we've had a tough schedule to start, but Tommy, we've known we've had a tough schedule to start since August, and we decided to do nothing about that. And so here we are, the place we expected to be at because Russell Westbrook is still on this team and we failed to address the main on-court issue that we had all last season. So what's your overall take on the Denver Nuggets game and how we've looked since we last potted um, after game one? Yeah, look, like you said, there have been some spurts that have been encouraging. I think the Denver game, while frustrating, I think is just, you know, look, it was game four of the season you know, first, I guess, somewhat we start after start, we started the season on the road at Golden State, but that's within state an hour flight away. You know, I'm not trying to make it, I'm not trying to make it seem like Denver is some epic road trip for this team. But for, for game four of the season, when you're when most NBA vets are still kind of playing themselves into shape, it is tough to deal with that altitude. And you you kind of saw it with LeBron and AD. I mean, those guys were gassed. I mean, we gave up 35 fast break points. That is atypical for most teams. I imagine especially a Darvin Ham team is not going to, you know, be happy giving up 35 transition points. Part of that is Denver used the altitude to their advantage and ran us off the court. And, and you know, I, I, I don't take away too much from that other than the whole overall theme of the season, which is that this team is just not an one through 10, like, adequately equipped to compete on a night-to-night basis we have done some interesting things particularly defensively that have enabled us to frankly use to, to frankly make the best of this sort of wonky roster and turn a team with eight guards or whatever we have on the roster into a team that um you know can uh actually compete most nights we're i don't know where we stand now but going into the denver game we were was second or third or something in the in the league in um defensive efficiency and Mm -hmm. that is a small sample size but it's also a small sample size of like you know really all four of the teams we've played so far are going to are projected top 10 offenses in the nba you know so like we have been competing defensively but this team has so many issues in terms of like NBA quality depth, you know, and, and that is going to become a huge, huge problem. I mean, the fact that we have put together a team around two, you know, when they're healthy, top five to 10, you know, you want to stretch it top 15, 20 players in the NBA. And we are like by far the worst offensive team in the league. I mean, we're averaging the least amount of points. We're scoring points out there. Like it's 1999, you know what I mean? And, (laughs) you know, we are by far, like you said, historically bad as a three point shooting team. And, you know, all, all it really feels like people are willing to say about those two facts is that, you know, the same thing they've been saying since May, which is that, Oh, it's going to take time. And, Oh, you know, we're going to, Guys are going to have to make shots and, oh, we feel confident that these things are going to improve. Like we hear that every year and and nothing has really changed. I, the last thing I'll say is like, I think you tweeted this yesterday or at some point, And I think it really hit the nail on the head, which was, you know, how many more years like, you know, of, of talking about doing the right things and then coming into the season using the first five games as your preseason Like, how many Mm -hmm. more times are we going to do that? We're not the defending champs. We shouldn't have that luxury. 
You know, the last time we came into a preseason serious and won a couple games, it led to a championship. And for some reason, <laughs> like everyone is still so happy to fall back on this. Like, oh, n- none of this really matters because we have LeBron and AD and we just need to get them to the playoffs. And it's like, you're not getting to the playoffs if, yeah. you know, you're not taking these types of things seriously. Yeah, it's a trickle-down effect. And the Lakers, if you include the preseason this year, they are 1-9, and nine, including yeah. some ridiculous preseason blowouts by 47 points and 30 points, respectively, to the Sacramento Kings. Okay, so... Yeah. Yeah, I agree with pretty much everything you said. And AD at the 5... LeBron at the five, these nice small ball lineups where they're whizzing up and down and they're able to hold the Denver Nuggets to 13 and three over the last four minutes of the first half. Are those great and fun to watch? Because they did that in pretty much every game, right? They've had spurts where they're able to hold their opponents over a five minute stretch to, you know, five points or something. But like I mentioned, to me, it just seems like a nice little gimmick because it's all about sustainability. AD and LeBron James can't keep this up for, they can't even do it in a game, you know? And I understand no. that maybe, Can I? yeah, go ahead. And I just want to say something about AD at the five. Okay. I understand that like, you know, everyone is on the same page and when the playoffs come and when the closing game lineups come, AD at the five is going to give you the best balance on both sides of the floor. There's no denying that. But you have a guy here who is, like, screaming for the world to hear. And, like, everyone kind of treats AD at the five, like, as though, like, this guy is just being kind of selfish and he should be playing the five and he's just kind of being a pansy about it. This guy's been screaming for the world to hear, I prefer to play the four. I prefer to not play the five. And maybe somebody should listen to him because when we try to play this guy at the five for any sort of significant extended periods of time he gets hurt okay and the guy's body is not built to take this kind of physical abuse he's much better in like a quarter or not excuse me a free safety type of defensive role where he could play a little bit on the perimeter play a little bit of uh, inside be a weak side shot blocker be a weak side ball deflector and you know he doesn't want to be in there mucking it up with Jokic and getting rebounds and beyond the want it is like actually causing him to become more injured <laughs> you yes, know what i mean yep. and we're just like happy to continue rolling this out it's like it's it, just to make our otherwise wonky roster fit together you knew that ad prefers to play the floor and not just it's again not just a preference maybe it's an injury and and sustainability thing and we just re- refuse to acknowledge that aspect of it you know it, it's it's like becoming very frustrating and i mean here we are like four games into the season and the dude is having back pro- he he already does not look as explosive as he did like game one of the preseason. Yeah, it's wild to me that the front office doesn't seem to have a pulse on their own players, you know, who they've had for the last five years, four or five years. But anyways, as I mentioned, at the end of the day, to me, the summary is the Lakers have a sustainability problem, whether it's maintaining and managing Anthony Davis and LeBron James usage and minutes and giving them the proper support around them, or wondering whether all these three-guard lineups with Smalls can actually keep up their frenetic defensive spurts for more than a quarter run or two. And the biggest thing outside of that is just, or in conjunction with that, is running AD and LeBron James into the ground unnecessarily, right? I mean, that's pretty much what we were both hinting at. We, we both, over multiple podcasts this offseason, we both incessantly warn people about this exact scenario that the Lakers are now find themselves in if the front office didn't address their biggest on-court problem in Russell Westbrook and field a more competent roster, right? We said that if we're still trying to futilely accommodate Westbrook and still working with an incomplete half-assed roster waiting for some mid-season trade to materialize, that that could potentially put an immense burden on AD and LeBron earlier on in the season that may burn them out by the time you actually figure out what the hell you want to do with your roster and get some actual reinforcements. And by that point, it may be too late. And at 0-4, it may be too late. And this is why we said, you know, giving up two first-round picks for, like, a Buddy Heald or a Miles Turner is not just about getting Buddy Heald and Miles Turner. There is added value in the timing of when you get that done, i.e. before training camp, so that you actually give yourself 
so that you actually give yourself an actual chance to build out some cohesion early and get that momentum ball rolling to avoid this exact scenario that we now find ourselves in, where LeBron is pushing out not-so-subtle subtext messages on Instagram four games in, where AD is clutching his back in game four after playing 36 minutes a game. And remember when Darvin Ham said, I'm not trying to play LeBron James and AD more than 30 minutes a game to start the season. And here we are, both of them playing 35 plus, you know, all for the sake of being 0 and 4. Uh, And again, this this goes all the way back up to upper management. So my one question to you before we get into upper management and before we take it to break is, is this just a product of a tough schedule? On the one hand, you could say the Lakers were dealt a tough hand with this early schedule because Warriors, Clippers, Nuggets are all playoff contenders, and even the Blazers, while middling, still have Damian Lillard and are currently 4-1, and one, though I will say all of their wins came essentially on game winners, so I don't think they're actually a good team, and Damian Lillard is, is expected to be out the next one or two weeks, so they may slip in the standings, but... I guess my caveat to that is the Warriors, Clippers, and Nuggets were far from full strength and either had main starters completely out or on a pitch count. And regardless, besides that, let's just agree that the Lakers had a tough earlier schedule, had a tough earlier start to their schedule in comparison to most other teams. Even if we agree on that premise, our schedule isn't necessarily going to let up anytime soon. And as I mentioned earlier, This front office and this team knew what the schedule looked like back in mid-August, okay? They knew this was coming. We all saw the schedule and were like, I think at best the Lakers are three and seven, you know? (laughs) And we, we decided to not do anything about our roster to hopefully help us stem the tide here. So we all saw this coming and it's turning out to be even worse than we initially expected. All because, again... It starts with an institutionalized systemic self-sabotaging by the front office who chose not to do anything about this Westbrook situation, and they proceeded to do nothing to address the Lakers' clear deficits in one, size, and two, shooting. The fact that we are relying on Matt Ryan, a DoorDash driver, and Matt Ryan's been great. I'm not trying to throw any shade at Matt Ryan, but the fact that we're relying on a dude who we signed two days before the season started and signed two days before training camp started, he clearly wasn't part of the larger plan. So to me, it's just, it trickles down from the top and we're seeing the erosion happen from all levels now. And as you mentioned last podcast, we're once again scrambling and we're in this frantic state to start the season. And I am not sure if we can recover from here. I don't think we can either. And look, on the comment I want to make on the tough schedule is, you know who else has a tough schedule? The Orlando Magic. You know who else has a tough schedule? The Sacramento Kings. What I'm trying to say by this statement is when you suck, every game is hard. Okay? Mm. And that's, that's the situation we're in right now. I mean, like you said, Denver was not at full strength. Not only were they not at full strength, they were the worst defensive team in the NBA coming into that game. There's 30 teams in the NBA, and Denver was 30th in defense coming, coming into that game. And we made them look like, you know, the mid-2000s Detroit Pistons. Okay, so Mm -hmm. like when you suck, your schedule is hard because every game is hard, you know, so it's it's just we have a we have a roster problem. We have an NBA depth talent problem and you have the opportunity to turn an albatross contract into multiple players. I don't I'm so tired of this argument of like. No, nothing catapults us. You know, it, I, I'm only going to use both picks if, if it makes us a serious contender. What teams are serious contenders this year? There's never been this much parity. What makes you a serious contender is getting into the playoffs with a healthy LeBron and AD and rolling the dice from there. That makes you a serious contender, because even when you start at the top of the West, you're looking at the Warriors it's hard to repeat. We Everyone knows it's hard to repeat. They have that going against them. The Clippers have not been able to stay healthy for a full season in the last four years. Okay, The Denver Nuggets are the third, uh, last one of the worst defenses in the league. Dallas relies too much on Luka. Minnesota is asking Carl Anthony Towns to defend on the perimeter. The Pelicans are pretty young. I mean, you can go down the list and you sort of start to, you can poke some weaknesses into in like all of these teams. And I think a big thing is getting there. 
you know what I mean? And everyone, mm-hmm. it's like, it's like, so it's kind of disturbing to me at this point that like when these trade discussions come up about like how we're going to use these picks, people are so focused on like, well, this trade doesn't net us someone who can defend Jason Tatum in the finals. <laughs> you know what <laughs> I mean? And it's like, how about we worry about getting to the playoffs? Because that also has value. You know what I mean? It's like, do we want to be the New York Knicks where we're like begging for Jalen Brunson to come son- sign with us? And, you know, and like that to be like the the one silver line or like one kind of glimmer of hope we have to turn the franchise around. Like when you have success, even if it's just repeated moderate success, you can lure guys in because they can view themselves as like we are, I might be the one guy they need to fill it, plug a hole in the rotation. And then we can, you know, we can do some interesting things when you're repeatedly rolling out 30 win teams. It becomes harder to do that type of thing. Yeah, and well, and beyond even trying to make the playoffs and build towards something that can moderately resemble a contending team, to me, it's just like, why don't you just think about the health of LeBron James and Anthony Davis? Because you know what types of competitors they are, right? If you give them a faulty roster and you know before the season starts that it's a faulty roster— you know they're going to eventually start pressing. You see Anthony Davis out there with a bad back continuing to play because he knows people are going to get on him for not playing, right? But you've put him in this situation where he doesn't have the requisite amount of support around him. You've put him in a situation where he feels pressed and pressured to go out there and drag the team on his back to the point where we're now in a must-win game situation against the freaking Minnesota Timberwolves, okay? And, and AD might not even play, by the way. AD might, <laughs> might not even play, but a- actually he might play because he feels pressured to play. Yeah. And we're going to see Anthony Davis and LeBron James run themselves into the ground to try and carry this faulty-ass roster that you built them. And you knew it was a faulty-ass roster. So to me, it's all about process. And look, I appreciate the podcasts like Laker Film Room who break down the intricacies of the game and whatnot. But I'm not in the micro-analyzation part of things in this season yet because, to me, it's pointless because I go back to the front office and the fact that they don't even know what type of team they've assembled. So, to me, it feels futile to even look at the nitty-gritty details of what's going on in the court. And that's just my personal take on things. I can't get myself to analyze this team for too long because I know that it's not the actual roster or it shouldn't be the actual roster we'll have in a week or two or maybe a month or two, you know? Because this current front office still has no semblance of an idea who they are, what they want to become, what they're trying to do with this season. And to me, it goes back to process, and that's something we've been saying all offseason. Even outside of making the playoffs, even outside of trying to win a championship— do you think that this front office has done right by process starting this offseason? No, they have not at all done right by process. And part of the reason it's pointless to microanalyze this team is because the team is a mess at a macro level. Usually when yeah. it's like you get into like the micro analysis, it's like, well, you know, this team should be winning games. But so let's try to like dig into why they are, what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong, what they need to improve on. That's like so far away from where we are. Our whole roster is broken, you know, and and so and and it's, you know, again, not holding, not holding guys accountable. Like there were such a focus on holding guys accountable at the team level. Where's the accountability for the front office? Where's the accountability for Darvin Ham and how he's managed, you know, kind of these first four games and how he managed the preseason? Where's the accountability for Rob, you know, when it comes to signing for? Um, or excuse me, like eight guards on this roster, not addressing the three-point shooting, having Woj go on ESPN and talk about how, you know, the Lakers aren't concerned about three-point shooting because it'd be a free agency because they feel they can easily add it through a trade. You know, like there's not, there's just none of that. Well, where's the accountability for the media circus that we all anticipated and that we're now in one week into the season where why are we getting lineup rumors about Austin Reeves starting, you know? Like, we knew this was going to happen. We knew this was going to be a distraction. We haven't even gotten to the off-court implications of, like, how this has affected the team. We're four games into this season, and it already seems like everybody's subtexting each other. You know, subliminally saying stuff to each other on the sides. And every interview is now so, the guys are being so curt with the reporters. Like, who could have anticipated this happening? And it's all because, Tommy, the Lakers are serving two masters right now, or maybe multiple masters. 
because they are, as usual, half-assing multiple things or trying to balance multiple plates. They claim to be trying to field a competitive team while also trying to integrate a Russell Westbrook who doesn't want to be here and who they know they'll trade at some point. I just don't understand how they could have thought this was a good idea or that it made any logical sense to do this. So, you know what? Look, I mean, these are the, but they're the, they're the same guys who have, I mean, chronically undervalued their own assets. They're the same guys who traded all of the entire roster's depth and a first round pick to get themselves into this, this situation in the first place. And so the crazy thing is it's like, we kind of just lean on like these guys patting themselves on the back all off season being like, yes, we understand we're addressing it. How many mistakes do they have? Do they get to make, you know, year after year, after year, after year, like the guys that worked last year, we let them go. The guys that, you know, worked the year before we traded them all away. You know what I mean? It's like, and, and adding players that don't really make sense, doing weird things like, signing Dennis Schroeder after you have six, five point guards already, because he looked good in Eurobasket, And you're not really sure if you could like, you're not really sure if you can give him minutes, but like, you just don't want the asset to walk away. Like we're talking about a, a guy that no one else in the entire league wanted to sign. Like right. that's the thought process that have that's happening in our front office. Like how many more years do we have to live with this? Apparently three more years after this one because Rob Polinka was extended. But you know what? Let's leave it right there. We'll take it to break. When we return, we'll, we'll close this episode out uh, talking about some interesting stats that the team has put up through the first four games and also talk about the macro question of where we should go from here because even at 0-4, I feel like we're at a pivotal fork in the road moment where the front office finally has to step up to the plate and make a damn decision. So we will catch you guys after the turn. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, so we are back. Tommy, are you ready to look at some interesting stats? I'll give you the bad first. Okay. (laughs) More with regards to three-point shooting, if you can believe it or not. The Lakers are eighth in the league in three-point attempts at 37 a game. So it seems like they're up to snuff with the modern NBA. Unfortunately, they are dead last in makes at (laughs) 8.3. So they're the only NBA team that isn't averaging nine threes made per game. They are shooting, as I mentioned, 22.3% from three. Since 1999-2000, that is the worst three-point percentage in NBA history. The next worst is this year's OKC team at 27.3%, which is a 5% bump from us. And then the the 2002-2003 Denver Nuggets at 27.8%. With regards to field goal percentage, you mentioned how they're like in the bottom five or whatever in points per game. They're also second to last in the league in field goal percentage at 41.6%. Likely dragged down by their three-point percentage and their three-point attempts. The only team worse than us, the OKC Thunder in field goal percentage, okay? Who are actively trying to tank for a Wembanyama. Um, The Lakers are also dead last in offensive rating with a 96.9 rating. They are 26 in overall net rating with a minus 7.1. And as expected, they are second to last in overall rebounding percentage. So let me try to spin things a little bit more positively. On the positive end of the ledger with regards to stats, the Lakers are number two in the league in steals with 10.5 strips a game. How do you like that? They've been active. I mean, you can't deny that. They've been very active and using their hands well on defense. And they definitely, I mean, you the eye, the eye test backs that one up. You've seen mm-hmm. this year, we've, you know, we've been solid defensively in years past, but this year it feels like we're causing a lot more disruption in terms of knocking the ball away. Yeah, and Anthony Davis in particular is averaging like 2.5 steals just by himself. It's kind of crazy. Um, yeah. The Lakers are now, after four games, our fourth in defensive rating at 104 behind just the Suns, Cavs, and Bucks. So that's been impressive. And um, it's been impressive. Like you can say small sample size, small sample size against very good offensive teams. Mm-hmm. 
Although there there is a caveat stat out there talking about how a lot of the teams the Lakers have faced so far have had a lot of wide open looks, even despite this defensive rating. And True. those teams are just missing wide open shots. And you could early maybe season, say like, yeah, yeah early season uh, trying to get their feet under them sort of thing. Um, lastly, the Lakers are second in pace behind just the Warriors. So they're kind of setting out to do what they intended to do. But again, as I mentioned, because you're serving so many different masters all at once, it's like you only see flashes of these stats, right? Because on the other end, you're still trying to give Russell Westbrook 27 to 30 minutes, right? And you still haven't swapped out his position with actual viable starter level players or shifted AD to the four spot, et cetera, et cetera. And until those things are addressed, these stats will remain sort of flashes. Let's talk about positive player standouts so far. Um, who stands out to you? Because I'll go first and say Lonnie Walker. He, um, in spite of the fact that he can't shoot, and we kind of knew this coming in, he's not a consistent shooter. To me, he's almost like a shooting guard version of Kuzma in the sense that not a consistent three-point shooter, but he brings the energy and versatile scoring. And he's done a lot of good things with regards to driving it into the paint and finishing. Uh, So I really like what I've seen from Lonnie Walker and on the defensive end, just his activity as well and fighting over screens and being able to shuffle his feet, reminiscent of when Kuzma finally bought into the defensive end of things his last two years with the Lakers. So uh, does Lonnie Walker, is Lonnie Walker one of your positive standout players? He's probably the biggest standout for me. I think, you know, Lonnie, all the analytics were so bad on him. I was so low on that signing. I was just like, what is this guy going to do? Is he even going to make the rotation? When it comes time to start, I'm like, here we go. Another clutch favor. We're just going to start. Again, he is a young player. He's not a perfect player. He has flaws. But he competes on both ends. He doesn't – he takes a little too many threes. His shot selection is a little suspect. You know what I mean? But, like – Frankly, some of his the reason he's had to take so many shots is because we've been so poor offensively. So overall, I've been probably the most impressed with him. He is, adds a very nice athleticism dynamic to the starting group, and I, you know, it's a, it's it's so far. I feel like it's been a good use of the uh, non uh, the uh, MLE that we had to use this offseason. Yeah, I agree too. And my only problem with Lonnie Walker at the beginning was. I mean, I can still debate that I'd rather have Isaiah Hardenstein or Jalen Smith here, given the fact that we rounded out the rest of the roster with shooting guards, more guards. But it was always Lonnie Walker signing and us being down on it was always it was always in the prism of we already have so many guards. Right. So that's the only reason why I was down. But he's definitely, I think, proving that he's worth that contract and maybe more. So he's been a nice bright spot in the same way that Malik Monk was a bright spot. But because he adds that defensive element of things, I think I'm almost more bought into Lonnie Walker in some senses. Um, I'll just go down my rung of other positive standouts, bullet points really quick, and then you can give any, uh, any other guys that stand out to you as well just to keep the pace up. Troy Brown Jr. has been a nice, pleasant surprise in the last two games since he's entered. Solid player, high basketball IQ. He's a floor general with size. And in light of, you know, Kendrick Nunn struggling to start off this season and Russell Westbrook being Russell Westbrook, it's been kind of nice to have a guy who has high basketball IQ on the court and can play make a little, but also not need the ball in his hands to keep the ball moving. And he's almost like who you wanted THT to be last year. And I kind of see him as if you fuse THT and Stanley Johnson into one player, right? He's like the more calm, settled version of THT, who's not the scorer type, but he has the length. He can cut into the paint off ball, but he can also playmake a little in the same way that we saw Stanley Johnson playmaking towards the end of the season. And he just gives you more size. And I think he's played really well off of LeBron James and Anthony Davis off ball, which is the most important thing. And then some other quick hits. Austin Reeves, he's actually hitting his threes. He's shooting 40% from three, and in the last two games, he's hit two threes in each of those games, and that's a really nice positive development. I think he should, he can be more aggressive and continue to shoot that shot. And then Matt Ryan is our best three-point shooter at 50%, hitting four of eight. So those are my quick hits. Any other positive player standouts outside of, obviously, Anthony Davis and LeBron James? Yeah, I, uh, to follow up on the Troy thing, you know, the three and D kind of prototype wing has been like a... I don't know, a staple of basketball for the last two decades, at least it feels like, you know, so 
The problem, though, with that is you get a lot of guys who fit that mold on paper and they end up being big time stiffs. Um, Troy Brown Jr. is like a basketball player. I, I, I actually like never really followed him super closely other than, you know, the Laker trade rumors that have come up in the past. And other than that, pretty much just watching his highlights, he's always been kind of low minutes guy or not not a firm rotation guy on like middling teams. So I haven't really paid too much attention. That guy can do things with the ball. I mean, he can handle it. You know, he's solid, solid defender. His jump shot looks good. I mean, he hasn't been hitting it so far, but he's probably a little rusty. Um, but I, I really, really like his game, and I hope he will continue to get more minutes as the season goes. Fully agree with you on Austin. He needs to be taking more shots. You know, we're we're running these sets that, like, you know, we've seen in this quote-unquote motion offense or whatever that – uh, motion spread offense that Ham is trying to run that like the Spurs have run and the Hawks have run and the Bucks have run over the years and a lot of a, a big staple of those offenses is guys catching the ball at the three-point line pump faking and driving to create another collapse the defense and either create another look or an easier shot and I feel like Austin too much uh, pump fakes off open look good looks and tries to get a look for somebody else I don't know if that's a function of them maybe putting in his mind that he should take on more of like a point guard mindset or what, but he is what he, like you mentioned, he's shooting 40%. He hit a couple threes, like the last couple of games, we need three point shooting. He's got to be more aggressive trying to score. Um, Mm -hmm. And you know, that's, that's just something young players have to learn sometimes is when to be aggressive and when to play make. And I think he's being too deferential to his veteran teammates and he needs to be, be look, uh, be trying to be a little more aggressive for himself. Yeah, I agree. Now, with regards to players to worry about, uh, for me, it's Pat Bev's offensive game and his shooting. I mean, we talked about this coming into this, where it's like, uh, it already seems like he's had a regression 34% last year, and he's never really been a volume three-point shooter. And obviously, he's like shooting, I don't know, like 18 20% this year, and it just... Yeah, it it just doesn't look great. He looks washed up offensively. He's doing great stuff on the defensive end and kind of, you know, drumming up the defensive momentum for the rest of the team. But if you're an absolute liability on the other end, it just hurts because we're already a team full of offensive liabilities. So you can't be another one of those when your whole thing was like you hit your wide open threes, right? Um, And then Damian Jones. Um, I'll chalk some of this up to just like not handling him right in the preseason like the rest of this roster because this is pretty much the only this is like the second time I've seen him in consistent minutes and it hasn't even been consistent. Um, But Damian Jones hands and his lack of a second jump burst is kind of concerning given how athletic he is. I will say I'm not going to go down the same path that I did the last time we had him where I kind of threw him out the door quickly when he wasn't producing the way I expected and then he gets traded to Sacramento and all of a sudden he gets his second wind and it's like oh Damian Jones is amazing so I'm willing to give him time obviously and again the ham and whatever they're trying to do with Westbrook has done him no service here because it doesn't seem like the team is on the same page of what they want to do with the roster in general but I just hope that he rounds into form because right now he looks rusty right and I think he'll jump he'll he'll snap into place but that comes with reps in a consistent role but just from what i've seen he's like it seems like he's always fumbling the ball and instead of just going right back up with it he has to collect himself right so that's the one concerning thing that i've had and then with regards to the most concerning player that people are talking about i actually put him in the neutral category and i'm talking about kendrick nunn i know he's looked horrific but like He's not going to stay this way forever. And I feel like the last game against the Nuggets was kind of a microcosm of the start of his season where he was like 0 of 6 to start. And then all of a sudden he gets a layup to go. He gets a mid-range jump shot to go. He gets a lob to AD to go. It's like, yeah, we need to calm down and act like we've seen an actual ep- an actual 82-game regular season and the ebb and flow that can happen for players within that season. And I think it's just... Kendrick Nunn is going through a rough stretch. We're going to need him, and I think he'll be able to find his way out of that. So any players of concern for you, if you want to tack on to what I already mentioned or anybody else? Uh, I'll just tack on to a couple of those. I mean, so Pat Bev, I totally agree. I'm, I mean, this was the concern was that his shooting is taken offensively. He's taken a dip. You know what you're getting defensively. I mean, the guy's elite, and he's doing a great job on that end. And even just like mucking things up and annoying people. Like it's that's this roster could use any advantage it can get. And he's helping in that regard. Um, but, you know, he made his, or he kind of got his reputation for being a steady three point shooter with playing for, you know, 
the Rockets, playing for the Clippers in situations and offenses designed to where he was only taking catch and shoot wide open corner threes at a low volume. And more and more nowadays, the way defenses have adapted to all of this stuff, and especially on a team with no spacing, he's not doing that as much. A lot of his three pointers are coming from the break. I mean, like he is still missing the corner ones. Don't get me wrong, but he is taking a lot from like the corner, from like the angles, like, you know, above the break type of threes. And that's not his game. He's taking a lot, like dribbling around a screen and shooting it off the dribble. Like that's not his game. So he's going to, if he's going to keep taking this quality of three, then like, yeah, he's going to shoot low thirties and nobody should be surprised by that. Um, That's, you know, looking at Damien too. The one thing that concerns me about him is the basketball IQ aspect. It just feels like everything out there takes so much like mental effort from him. You know what I mean? Like when he, sometimes he'll make these plays and you're just like your jaw drops because he's so athletic for a guy that size. And then like, sometimes he'll make a play where like LeBron, like, like we're talking about a split second game. Okay. These are like elite NBA players and you don't have the time to catch the ball off a bullet pass from LeBron, gather yourself for a second and then go up and try to make a play. And it Mm -hmm. feels like every step of everything he does, there's like a gathering step. Like he catches the ball and it takes him, he can be wide open under the rim for a dunk. And he doesn't just like burst off the ground to dunk it. He like, takes a second looks around and by the time he's going up the dunk and he gets fouled and then it's like you're sending a guy who shoots 50 percent. so it's like those are like those are low though you're taking a two point per, per possession turning it into one you know that that's hor- that's horrible you know and he does it too often in my opinion and frankly defensively i don't know what the numbers look like with him on the court but i mean it's got to be a huge drop off when AD's not there and that's not his fault per se but like in these drop coverages, it's like he doesn't like you're supposed to drop, but like you have to defend the guy eventually. He like drops all the way back to the rim, and pretty soon he's like under the rim and can't contest the shot. And the guy's like he's like giving up layups on these like pick and roll coverages, you know. So on both sides, the mental lapses have been like concerning to me. And I feel like Thomas Bryant will have would have. And by the way, he 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 didn't look like a world beater in the preseason either, but like. He probably would have taken some of these minutes at this point, you know, had he not been hurt. I will, um, I will, I will say though, for Damon though, I don't know if you've noticed this, but he has made some really nice passing reads out in the perimeter. So I think the gathering thing is just this guy's rusty, and he wasn't even part of the preseason rotation. I think this is a natural course of like get these guys some reps. The big men were totally phased out because they look. It's kind of like the Kent Bazemore thing from last year, where it's like, okay, they look bad. Let's not play them at all for the next nine games and all of a sudden let's try and rely on them. Like, what do you expect to happen? You know what I mean? So, but yeah, I agree with your concerns, but yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, he's, he's a young player. So this stuff can get, can be fixed, but it, it's a little concerning that, you know, we had two big men other than 80 and neither of them have looked particularly impressive. Yeah. And then I kind of, you know, agree with you on none. I, it, am I concerned? Quote unquote. Sure. I, I would be maybe more concerned if everybody else was playing great and none look like crap, but everybody kind of looks like crap. So, you know, it's like, None over the course of an 82 game season, I think we'll we'll pick it back up. Um, I'm I'm le- a lot less concerned about him than I am about some of these other uh, these other guys we have at the bottom of our bench. Yeah, I agree with you. So for the last five minutes, let's talk about the Lakers on a macro level. What should they do from here? I don't want to go into specifics of they should do this trade or whatever, but I mean. Yeah, should they still try and swing a trade with the Pacers, yes. Spurs, Charlotte, the, Mystery? What the Lakers <laughs> should do at a macro level is use all their picks that they're eligible to use, which is 2027 and 2029. This has been well documented at this point. And Russell Westbrook, and even Max Christie, who is a waste of a roster spot on, on this type Not of roster, Max to be Christie. honest. And use all of that and get whatever the best yield of two to three NBA rotational players is. Again, I, I just... They've already wasted enough time as it is. They've wasted enough time. And I don't know what the plan is for these picks long term. Again, everyone's like, well, <laughs> you know, the way that they, they got the athletic to spin this, right? Like, no, oh, the Lakers are looking to walk into the summer of 2023 with their pockets flush full of 30 million in cash and two and the, and you know, a slew of first round picks in the future. And it's like, what you, what are you going to use those picks for? The two things are not, the two things are not, you know, are mutually exclusive, the cap space and the picks. 
we don't have any long-term salary to attach these picks to. So the earliest you can use these picks if you don't use them this year is going to be next year's trade deadline, because that's when you can trade the guys you signed with your $30 million of cap space. So what is the plan long-term? We go into next season kind of with another half-baked roster. Like, we have some NBA depth right now in Lonnie Walker, Kendrick Nunn, Austin Reeves. Um, uh, I'm struggling. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, you know, um, what Toscano Anderson, Troy Brown are pretty decent end of bench guys. Like we have some guys who are NBA depth type types of uh, pieces for us right now. And we can add to that. Okay. The $30 million that, everyone's kind of hanging their hat on is assuming that we drop all of these guys. Okay. So you drop all of these four or five guys I just mentioned and you end up picking up guy like two guys with your 30 million. Okay. So then you have another death problem. So then you're filling out the roster with minimum type guys again, and then you're coming into the season with all your picks and a half baked roster again, that you're going to try to fix in December and February again. So mm-hmm. I like it's it just like I don't understand that people are viewing it's like we're going to go into summer of 2023 with our 2027 and 2029 draft picks. That's going to be so valuable. No, it's like we can't do anything with that. Like maybe we trade a guy using a pick into our draft, into our cap space, but then we're not using the cap space to sign a free agent. So it's just like it. Yeah, it, like the two things are like actually, you know, mutually exclusive. We, we do not have both the way that it's sort of being presented like, Oh, we're going to have our, we're going to have all our picks and our draft space. It's like, yeah, we're going to have the picks, but then we can't do anything with them because once we sign these guys next summer, we're not going to be able to trade these guys until next December, next January. So it's just like wasting more time. They need to make a trade now if they, if they want to do anything. So, I mean, we've rehashed this topic over and over again. I think the far more interesting question is, is there a point, to it now in your opinion i mean it's zero and four so it's not insurmountable but at what point do we start uh, well uh, let me just yeah go ahead like at what point do we ask ourselves you know what even though it's a pick swap with new orleans maybe we do just go full reset with you can't trade lebron this year but maybe you tried to we try to trade ad and we stop playing this little charade that we've been doing and you know like is there a a point past no return, essentially, for you, because we already missed that first checkpoint marker of, like, you should have done this thing before the training camp started, you know what I mean? So yes. we're here where we're at, and I has have your expectations recalibrated, or is it, for you, there's, like, there is a window here. Like, the next three games, the next week, if we get a trade done, then we can still salvage this season, or are you to the point where, and I'll just give my thoughts, I think I'm at the point where, Yes, I would like to see us just try, just make the attempt for the sake of Anthony Davis and LeBron James, because just think about how this looks optically, that you're not actually supporting the superstars who came to save your franchise and got you a championship. That's going to look bad on other superstars who eventually want to sign here, right? Yes. That you're not actually doing something. Just make the attempt is my point. But even with that, even when the attempt has been made, I personally am recalibrating my expectations to... Yeah, make a run at it, uh, make the playoffs. But for me, my goal is not a championship, not even necessarily the the playoffs. It's just get to as close proximity in record as you can to the New Orleans Pelicans and focus on making that pick swap less damaging. If that means both of you make the playoffs, great. If that means we get a better better record than the Pelicans, then great. Like that's the whole plan all along. But now I've like, I've lowered the bar so low to the point where it's like, let's just make sure that our record is within five games of the New Orleans Pelicans. So even if they have to pick swap with us, we're not, you know, losing out on a top eight talent. Meanwhile, the Pelicans have, you know, a number 22nd pick in the late first round or something, you know? So what about you? For me, the pick is what it is. It's a swap. We put ourselves in this position. It is what it is. I'm not like, I'm not going to take the moral. I don't, I don't, I'm not saying you you were saying this. I just think that, like, I, to me, the moral victory of having the swap not bite us in the ass that much is not a, a huge factor. I mean, the way I'm sort of looking at this season is as follows. I think last season, I would not have felt this way. I, I give this team 10 games. If we don't make a trade in the next in the in the first 10 games of the season, I think at that point it becomes pointless. The reason I think even though we're 0-4, going on 0-5 and potentially worse, and that is not like 
completely the end of our season is because when you're playing defense at this level, even when your offense has been so bad that like you put so much extra pressure on your defense, when you're playing defense at this level over an 82 game season, you're probably going to win some games that you should not have won. And so like we've gotten some losses out of the way they were against pretty good teams, but we still have a chance, you know what I mean? To win some games that maybe we shouldn't have won because our defense is that good. So I, I don't think this, the, you know, it's all kind of a lost cause at this point. I think there is still, still time to turn it around. And I think the types of player, you know, the types of depth pieces that we're looking for in a rust trade, you can just plug and play, you know, and yeah, it's going to take some time and there's going to be an adjustment, but like, it's not necessarily, I'm asking for like, we need to trade Russell Westbrook and get like an NBA all-star number three type option. That's going to take some time to figure out with AD. It's going to be like two to three guys who are just going to be like another one of the guys. And so I think there's, there's time to do that. And the season is not lost because of the defense we've been playing so far. I agree with you, but we are running out of time and we are essentially saying the same thing we said two and a half months ago but this is yeah. the front office that we are working under and so we will continue to cross our fingers and pray that they will reach some sort of sensical epiphany but don't hold your breath so with that said that'll do it for this episode and we will catch you hopefully the next time we do this the lakers will have at least one win so yeah we will catch you guys next time and go lakers go go it's still lit. We can do this. All right, Tommy, I will catch you later. Peace. See ya. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.